0: This week we have Emer Burke, who is first and foremost a lovely, delightful person. Um, it was really just a delight to have her on the podcast. Me and Seth really enjoyed it. Uh, I guess to, dis- to describe her, she, first and foremost, she's an Irish woman, a mother, a psychologist and a druid. In fact, she is the current chief of order of bards, ovates and druids. What's a druid? What does it all entail? What's it all about? Let's find out. Emer Burke, welcome to the Earth of the Delights podcast. What's the crack? How are you keeping?
1: (laughs) Very well, thank you. I'm sitting here, you know, in my house in Kilkenny looking out on a very dull, damp, typical, you know, February day in Ireland. Uh, I've just been out picking some snowdrops, so it's warm, but just damp and dull. Otherwise, I'm okay, Thank you. How are you?
0: I'm not too bad, thanks uh, finding the present lockdown and weather quite difficult, but um trying my best to take it day by day. Um, to, to begin with Eer, we usually ask our guests to tell us a bit about themselves, and we know it's one of the hardest questions to be asked, but it is a requirement of our guests.
1: Oh my God, that's a really hard question because it's it's so uh, it's such a broad open question. Well, I'm Irish. And uh, I live in Ireland and uh, I don't live in the land of my birth. I was born in the Midlands in Offaly and um, I moved about 25 years ago to Kilkenny and it has adopted me. And it's a place that I'm very much connected to now. Having, although I was born in Offaly, I defected to Dublin. I hear your Dublin accent. And uh, I said I'd never go back to rural Ireland again, having escaped. And I lived there for 23 years. And then I moved, having lived a double life between Dublin and Kilkenny for four years and realized I was not getting the best of both, but I was getting the least of both. And then I decided to move to Kilkenny and I have never looked back. So I live in a beautiful place called Three Castles. And uh, I have a Norman Tower, which is one of the castles. My house is another one. It doesn't look like it. It's, it's an old rectory built in 1790 around a tower house. So uh, and we don't know where the third castle is. There are many uh, possibilities. So I look over the River Noor in a lovely place, six, six miles from Kilkenny City. So I'm very fortunate to be living where I am, and particularly in this time of pandemic where I'm looking at nature. I'm uh, able to go for a walk in the woods and although I'm isolated, <laughs> but I'm not alone because I'm I'm. I suppose I've got the landscape to support me.
0: That's beautifully said, Emer. I really love that perspective. I'm reminded of a Charles Eisenstein quote who said that we are never alone on Mother Earth. Really such a beautiful understanding of our time here, which I'm sure we'll explore shortly. But I have to ask, uh, what brought you to Kilkenny?
1: Love, that's the long answer.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I met my husband, He's, he passed away six years ago. Howard um and he 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 was living here and uh we met and because I said I had defected from rural Ireland I was never going back again <laughs> so we decided to live half and half between the two Dublin and Kilkenny thinking it would be wonderful to have a city life and a, a country life um and we had a, a our, when our son was 2 we decided no I'm going to move so I decided I'm going to move and we live in Kilkenny full time and uh, I have, it's been just wonderful, a lovely experience. And to be able to bring up our two children in rural Ireland is great. Um, very, very fortunate. So that's what brought me to Kilkenny. And I now belong here.
0: Wonderful. Am I right in saying you spent considerable time in Africa as well?
1: I lived, oh, I first went to Africa in 1982. I was a nurse originally. And I went out working as a nurse there to save the world. and. As you can see, I didn't do a good job of saving the world; <laughs> still in a mess. But I went out there in yeah, in 1982, and um, very idealistic, of course. And uh, my father died during that time, so I came back after 15 months, and then, and that's where I met my first husband. And then, in the late 80s, I went to Lesotho with him uh, for over three years. So that was I lived there again. And then uh, I started going to Tanzania in the mid 90s and for 20 years, every year went there uh, teaching. Uh, and in the meantime, my first husband and I separated and I met my second husband, Howard. So he came with me and our two children and um, we built a house there, a shack. Uh, we became very friendly with the healer there who offered us, said, why don't you build a house? And we did. And um, it's a long story. So we worked with him as a healer, videoing his work, presenting it at conferences. That's that was that was the extracurricular bit to my teaching. It had nothing to do with the teaching, but it. So we would go for about seven weeks at a time, and uh, then <laughs> he and his wife separated. So he says he was leaving. So he said, "Take the house with you." So we took the house down. It was built built using the the Bernie Siegel method, where you just bolt everything so you can unscrew everything, and you leave no mark. So we took it with us, we had another friend a Tanzanian who had a site with no house. Of course, we had a house with no site. So we said, can we put it there? So it's essentially her house. And if I go to visit, then I stay there, but it's really hers. So um, I stopped teaching there in 2014. The course ended. And um, I've been back once as a visit. Yeah. So uh, Tanzania holds, I suppose, a special place in my heart because I've got close friends there who are Tanzanians. And, um, you know, we're in regular contact. And my friends had a family wedding in December and January to which I was invited. And uh, they invited me in the summer. And I thought, that's crazy. With COVID, nobody's going to have any wedding. But they did because the pandemic left. And uh, I was just, I mean, they were sending me videos and photographs. But uh, COVID has come back again, but still not in a bad, well, maybe we don't know how it's going to pan out but so i'm still very very close to two families in, in in tanzania
2: and is that your did your trips in africa did they kind of kickstart your love for nature
1: i suppose it was always there okay my father was a tree planter sorry that he that wasn't his living but he was a great <laughs> lover of trees and mm-hmm. um i you know i remember helping him and you know with my siblings digging holes to plant trees in the garden and mm-hmm. um, And I remember I loved the mythology of the landscape and the land, which I got in primary school. But when I went to Turkana, that was in the north of Kenya, I became really interested in in, um, native herbs. Mm. I wasn't allowed to use it because it was like I'm I'm a primary healthcare worker. Leave that alone. But my watchman had a great knowledge of local herbs. So we sit uh, and converse about various herbs. And then when I went to Lesotho, I came, got involved in a healing group and, um, and that started that, um, I suppose in more, more ancient indigenous spiritual ways of looking at the world and it resonated with me. Yeah. And then when I went to Tanzania, uh, I became very friendly with Shaban, this healer and, um, I found it fascinating. And I've done some work with the Native American medicine woman as well. Again, resonances. But my frustration was they weren't from my landscape. So if you're talking about, you know, white buffalo calf woman, or I'd had initiations in Africa with African ancestors, it's their trees from their land, their landscape. And I thought, I'm here in Ireland. How do I, wow. how do I get it? that it becomes my own, or I can really, really integrate it rather than being maybe a visitor or a spectator. And Shaban, our healer friend, he spent three summers with us. We were doing this African Celtic workshops. And I remember the first day he came, I picked him up at the airport and we were in a bookshop in Dublin. And this book popped out called The Modern Day Druidess by Cassandra Eason. And I thought, I'm going to get this. And it was around. You can be a druid anywhere in an apartment with four pot plants. That's your grove. And it was really pragmatic. You can be on your own. You can be with a group of people. And she mentioned at the back mm-hmm. of the book uh, Obod, the Order of Bards, Ovits, and Druids, which is the 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 order I belong to, and I'm I'm the chief now. And she recommended it, so I um, went online and signed up, and I've never looked back. And the interesting thing is, I was so I started my druidry. And. uh, With the gwers the teachings that you get, um, you get a ritual uh, to follow the wheel of the year, and we were running a workshop, Howard Mm. Shaban and I, and it was the autumn equinox, so we did the ritual and Shaban said to me, you've been given a key, use it or the lock will get rusty. So in a way I had only joined the order like a little bit more than 10 minutes in and here I was running a ritual Mm. and he said, you've got a key. So he gave me permission. So I've been running them ever since here. So it was really interesting. That African connection allowed me in some way mm. to connect. And each year I would go to Tanzania. should used to be at Immolk, you know, this time. And I would run an Immolk ceremony, which was really strange in that landscape. But the more I went there, the deeper my roots went in Ireland.
2: Right. Okay. And I wondered... Um... I mean, you've just touched it there about the Druidry. How, could you explain to some someone who, or to us who, you know, were not experts, what it what it means to be a Druid? Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions, um, a lot of beliefs out there that maybe aren't true. Because um, when you say, uh, you know, when I said, oh, I'm going to be interviewing a Druid next week, some of my friends had some, you know, oh, oh really? Oh, don't they believe in this? Don't they believe in that? And I was like, well, actually let me do my reading because I don't even know exactly what it is. And, and so I was wondering if you could kind of give us like a, I know it's a hard question, but a brief synopsis of what it means to be a Druid.
1: Well, you're going to get my take because okay. there's a there's a, there's an adage, if you ask 10 Druids what druidry is, is, you'll get 11 different answers. So, <laughs> and essentially it is a nature-based spiritual path where we look to the landscape and the seasons as a metaphor for our lives. Mm-hmm. And we follow that by marking them uh, you know, doing rituals, for example, or engaging with the landscape, marking the wheel of the year.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, it's it's a non dogmatic uh, spiritual path. We don't have a big book. We don't have dogmatic teachings, um, and we embrace you know a, a diverse uh, cohort of people. So you can be a Christian and a druid, a pagan and a druid, an ah. atheist, a druid, Muslim. It doesn't matter because what joins us is our love of nature so central with druid we have three strands a bardic and ovate and a and a, uh, a druidic strand the bardic strand is around the storytelling the history keeping the ovate is the, more, the the healer sh- shamanic strand and then the druid strand is more like the philosophical the teacher so what unites us is creativity, the pursuit of creativity and inspiration from the landscape. We call it Awan in Welsh or imasa um, in Irish. Um, being able to engage with the other world
2: mm-hmm.
1: past, the present and the future and the pursuit of wisdom. And that central to Druidry is, as a Druid, uh, is, is one of service, S- service to the land, service to your community and that notion of um, taking responsibility for your actions, looking at your actions through an ethical lens. Like I say, we don't have a big book, so we don't have a list of commandments. We don't have this notion of sin, but you live from your own internal moral compass and you take responsibility for your actions. Right. We have that notion of the law of the harvest, you know, uh, what you sow, so you should reap. It sounds very biblical, but I think that's maybe a universal value that people have. Uh, corresponding maybe to karma so um, but it's that love of uh, that nature and what's really interesting the Irish word for druidry and magic is the same it's dríocht. so right through druidry is that notion of magic and it's not about um, manipulation and through spells and we, we do have wands here is I have a wand here made from Bog pine, that's a <laughs> wand I really like. Uh, we're not cursors or anything like that. Um, a wand helps you to focus energy or focus thought and intention. So we manifest rather than summon, rather than manipulate. Right. So, um, And it's about tapping into the magic of the landscape. And you know, we use the word in our ordinary everyday lives, we will describe something as magic. Uh-huh. Uh, and everybody will have a different notion of what magic means. But somehow you get that sense, you listen to a magical piece of music, or you look at a piece of art and you go, that is magic, or you're looking at a magical sunset, that there's a sense that's, that's pre-verbal or non-verbal that really catches you, that you engage with. And for me, that's what Druidry is about. And it's so much more. So you're
2: asking me. (laughs) No, no, no. Yeah, that was a great answer. (laughs) No, that was great. I
0: love this explanation of Druidry. Before we move into this, I just have to ask how you managed to balance the Western medical approach to health with what you were learning from your healing friend. Were there contradictions for you?
1: I don't think so. What it did was help me articulate what I already knew inside. So by the time I um, one of the frustrations I had with the medical model, I had them as a nurse, and this is why I went. I'm a psychologist now, so when I came back from Kenya, I I, I studied psychology. So by the time I met Shaban, I was, and when I went to Lesotho, I was a psychologist at that point. So what I was interested in was um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: a more holistic um, approach to people and their well-being. So what this was. Um, when I started in in Lesotho meeting healers and I joined a healing group, a healing and meditation group. And that's where I first discovered, heard about Lasterbury for the first time. I had never heard of Lasterbury. (laughs) They're really interesting. I have to go so far to discover these things. But what they did was like, it all resonated with me. It's almost like it confirmed something I knew deep down. So in a sense, it wasn't challenging. It just gave me confidence to engage with these ideas and say, actually, you know what? There's so much validity to this. This is what I have known, but I was never able to say. Does that make sense?
0: This really makes perfect sense to me. In fact, I resonate deeply with this statement because I often feel very similarly. Uh, When I started discovering many, quote unquote, alternative approaches to healing, my initial resistance usually dissipated after After I opened up to listening to the rationale, you know, the the rationale usually being that we have emotional, physical, spiritual, and mental needs, and if these needs aren't attended to, we we can experience a plethora of negative consequences. This makes sense to me. Splitting the mind from the body and the body from the environment, which we unfortunately see within the Western medical model, does not really make sense to me. Um why do you think we are still disregarding many of the more traditional healing approaches?
1: I I don't think we are now. I think they're coming back. But why did we do it in the past? I think maybe it was associated with uh lack of education or Uh, a lack of sophistication. So when we became industrialized and mechanized, et cetera, and we became allegedly more sophisticated uh, and and the way people spoke about science, that it kind of pushed away those old ways, except science is now recognizing this. And I think um, with the modern world, with this need to be in control and to imagine that we are in control, like we do it through technology. And of course, this pandemic has told us we are not in control. We never have been. But that we had, you know, a higher standard of living. I'm not talking about a higher quality of living, but a higher standard of living. Everything became mechanized and rational and logical. So therefore, the mystery was gone. And there is a huge craving and there always has been for mystery. We get it in stories. We get it in films. And Druidry is full of mystery. As is as is religion in many ways. But then there are people who are very authoritarian and who want certainty. And this is where the control comes in. So this is the way it is. And this is where fundamentalism comes in because fundamentalist um, worldviews or dogma mm. provide certainty. And even in the absence of evidence of that certainty, people still hold on to it. And, uh, and I think that certainty or that need for certainty is... Is being, is being eroded. so people are now wanting to because they find actually dogma hasn't helped, fundamentalism hasn't helped it results in war and hatred and fighting and conflict. And then there are people kind of going, okay there has to be more to, more to life than this so they're looking for meaning and, and engaging then with mystery. As science does, you know there are aspects of science that now looking at recognizing there are phenomena that they cannot actually explain right now. But that doesn't mean they're not worth looking at. So it's we don't know how this works, but we see something here. Let's explore this further. So I belong to a scientific and medical network based in the UK, but it's a worldwide organization which looks at science and looks at mystery. And Howard and I, for many years, went to the Mystics and Scientists Conference. I'm blown away by this. So you'd have tree huggers and meteorologists and chemists and foresters and therapists and healers all coming together not fighting but coming with their different um, perspectives to to try and make sense or unpack the mystery what is it that connects this and I just that's a lovely environment to be in because we're not fighting so you'll have physicists and you'll have mathematicians coming in there looking at consciousness
2: yeah it, it's, it's great that you say that actually because we i mean we interviewed um lucy jones who um wrote an article on drew um, you know mm-hmm. and she was taught she's spoken um, a lot about you know her relationship with nature um and how it kind of she found all all of this research about how the soil has a has an effect on your mental health and this that and all things that you would kind of disregard if you went strictly by the book um and then we actually we've got an interview coming out with Dr. Gaetan Chavalier, who um is kind of like the founder of Earthing. Um and I've actually got an earthing mat here on my desk which I use every day. Um again, something that when I explain to my friends, you you just say the tagline, like, oh, it's connecting with the earth's energy, it sounds very woo-woo. Um, and then yeah. when you kind of go into it more and you go, well, actually the rubber of your souls and this and that and blah, blah, You know, then my friends go, oh, actually, yeah, that that does actually make kind of intrinsic sense. Um, and then, you know, before you know it from being a naysayer, they've actually gone and bought themselves an earthing mat or whatever it may be. How do you think um, this kind, this belief in this connection with nature and, and the land has helped you, especially maybe now during COVID? Um, because a lot of people, um, uh, they live in cities and maybe they don't have that connection. I mean, there's nice parks in cities and so on, but maybe they don't have that connection with with nature. Um, how, has that, how has that helped you with kind of your mental health and your own spirituality?
1: Oh, it's helped enormously. And um, I remember at the first lockdown <laughs> yeah. because it happened, oh my God, almost a year ago. <laughs> I can believe. For 15 years, I wasn't able to walk on the road outside my house because of traffic and everything stopped. And I went for a walk every day within my two Ks and I could do an audit every day of what was in mm-hmm. the hedgerows and it, there was no dust, there was no pollution. It was, oh, I hadn't seen that plant before. And I found that actually just even doing an audit of what was there in terms of birds, plants, and I would come back feeling quite high. I also have a bike and sometimes I go cycling in the woods but i come mm. back quite high and just really buzzy because it's like i've gone into the woods where i'm upset i'm angry just really stressed and i call to the trees and i'll say give us a hand here and i come out of the woods in the end and i'm who that was great i feel i feel so much better so it's like um and this is not something i believe mm. this is something i know so when you talk about the earth mat or the so called woo woo stuff it's it's not about faith it's about actually this is my this is my experience this is what I know happens to me when I go and spend time at the tree or when I go and I walk in the woods or when I'm out in my garden I know what happens I know the benefits mm-hmm. I actually feel them so it's been an enormously helpful because I'm you know after this interview you now I go off to the woods again and um and it's like my body craves it it's like I get a bit mm-hmm. I need to go out I need to go out and then I come back in and then everything is well because remember with this pandemic all we can do is control this present moment is live in the now we're living with we've always lived with uncertainty but we had an illusion that we could plan and predict and all of that and of course this pandemic tells us we cannot and um you know we can't even maybe plan next week i mean that's how the future has been taken away from us so it's a real lesson in living in the now so i find nature helps me do that nature grows much slower you know trees uh are 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 slow beings and it's around a reminder just stop all i can control right now is whether i take a sip of tea whether i you know i've become more aware of my breath do i get up and go for a walk and that in itself is really really powerful because i can do things and Mm -hmm. i have a sense of agency because in you know with all of this pandemic is that um people don't have a sense of agency and even in the smallest things, what can I do? Even when the big things are, 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 are um, there are obstacles, but at least in the smallest thing, and that gives me a sense of, um, I suppose, a sense of consolation, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning is that I can mm. always make a choice. And it's about being in this moment yeah. because that's all that matters.
0: Emer, this is so beautiful. And I'm sure many of our listeners will appreciate these reassuring, truth-filled Words, I still find myself slipping away from the present too often, but you're so right. You know, this is all we have and this is all we've ever had right now. Uh, I I want to ask about experience. You mentioned you know these things. It's not faith. Why do you think many of us have somewhat unexplainable experiences and still wait for external evidence to believe our own experience, our own knowing?
1: I'm going to go backwards for the early part of my life. I didn't trust myself and I have a very, very strong gut as in it tells me things. But I ignored it because I was brought up and I come from a Roman Catholic background. Roman Catholics are brought up not to question. You just accept things. So it was like you could always be wrong was the chant I heard. So always give the other person the benefit of the doubt because you could be wrong. And I, of course, I took that on in spades, which meant I was always wrong, even though my gut was telling me one thing, but other people might have been saying something else. And I did that to my cost and it caused me a lot of damage. I've recovered. So I now know I am going to trust what I know. One example was, and this is not nature-based, is um, we home-educated our children. So my son has never been to school. He's now 22. And my uh, when my husband died, uh, my daughter was 13 and I knew for the first year after he passed, I wasn't able to <coughs> manage her home education myself. So I decided I was going to send her to a school. So this is going to school at 14 for the first time. And the only school that didn't make me churn when I looked at, on the websites was this School, So Irish language school. Gwalesgullan didn't have Irish. And, but I knew this is the school. And I remember it was ringing them in June, just a week before the school closed, saying... Can you let my daughter in in September? And, you know, I don't know if you heard people who um, when their children are conceived, then they book them into a school. So I'm doing it just the last week of the previous term. And I had a meeting and I have Irish and I, I, I spoke to the principal and she said, you know, she doesn't have Irish and she doesn't have this. And I said, my instinct is telling me this is the right school. I know it is. I know it is. I know it is. Everything else, everything logically, rationally would have said, don't do this. Anyway, she got in, and it's been the best thing ever. And there was an example of Mm -hmm. where all evidence is saying, except my gut, and I trusted it. Now I was scared, I was terrified, (laughs) and uh, it it's worked out. So I know sometimes my gut will tell me, and I go, "Mm -mm, I'm going to listen. I'll hold on. I won't react immediately, and then in time I realize actually, you know, I'm glad I listened to that. I'm glad I slowed down. I'm glad I didn't react. I just waited because. It, it has unfolded that my instinct was telling me usually if it's so I it's like I cannot now do myself a disservice and not know so and I actually because I'm older uh, I don't care what people think now so if people think I'm woo woo and wacky because I'm talking to trees so be it um it, it's it's and I'm lucky I'm living in an, in an Ireland now you know there's nobody going to uh burn me at the stake or for i actually find people are now more interested in druidry so for when my husband died almost six years ago we had the funeral in uh, in the grove in the garden so there were about 200 people there and he's buried next door in the graveyard there's a graveyard beside the house and he died at home here and people most of the people who came were catholic and they were just blown away by the ceremony including a close friend who's a priest he said Emer, he rang me a few days afterwards." And he said he was blown away, and he'd been telling his congregation about this Druid funeral he'd been to, and said this is how it should be done. So, and I've worked in a seminary for 27 years, and um, in a development studies program. That's how I went to Tanzania. Uh, and none of the the priests or nuns, or I've taught nuns and priests and lay people, and none of them have ever ever uh, criticized me, dissed me, or anything. They've been fascinated with what I do. Because it's nature-based, it's, there's no dogma because you can hold both. So I suppose that's my long answer. Sorry if I'm rambling on.
2: No, no, it's great. I'm really glad that you brought up language, actually, because um, that's something that intrigued me. And it's something, ever since I got to know Jim, um, I'm a bit of a language nerd, basically. I've, my dad's Italian, um, so I was brought up bilingual and I've moved out to Spain and I studied Spanish throughout my whole school career and a university and i love just picking up even if it's just a little word um even doing the research I, i'm not sure i'm gonna i might butcher this word here but that a woman um a female kind of uh druid is a bandry is that Band- right
1: bandry like,
2: yeah bandry, Band. yeah. so all so I, these little things and i lo- but what i find really interesting about um ireland is um and it's not alone in this in this circumstance in this example but A lot of Irish people, they don't speak Irish, Um, you know, and we know the history um probably a lot of people i try not to offend anyone here as an english person saying this thing but there's no i'm just gonna have to offend people unfortunately but look we know that what the english what the english did to the irish is is, was horrible and awful but unfortunately what that led to as well was a loss of language um now there are still obviously some parts that speak it and you can obviously if you put the effort in you can like your daughter you can go to schools and so on but it's not you know the 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 national language so, so to speak and i wonder a lot of a lot of times jim and i talk about identity and um the, the lack of identity the loss of identity and i think i've always noticed that when i go you know when i go to italy and i really connect with the language again and i speak italian to my cousins and this that, and that, i really feel in that moment i feel more italian than anyone could ever feel and i don't feel english anymore but then sometimes i start to miss english especially now that i live in spain and i don't use english as much i really start to miss it so then i'll start to watch films or something where I can really listen to the English language and all the, a Scouse accent, a Geordie accent, a Queens English and whatever, and really reconnect with those English roots. Um, And I wonder, do you think that that connection that you have with the land that you've spoken about isn't just, you know, with the nature, I mean, that might be one part of it, but also the fact that you have this, um, the language of your ancestors and you can actually use that, the language of your soul. And it's not just this, this notion, oh yeah, old Irish, but you can really use that. You can, use, and you can talk and you can, like you said here, the magic is, and Druidry is the same word and blah, blah, blah. And all of these little things that reconnect you back to your ancestors. Do you think that that plays a big part? And and the flip side, do you think that if more Irish people spoke it and were fluent in it, that they would have a more, they'd have a stronger connection to their ancestry?
1: For me, yes. I mean, Irish would make me cry. It really, I it it really touches me deeply, and we have a, a proverb in Irish: Chirgan, uh, changa, Chirgan anam." Uh, a country without its language is a country without its soul.
2: Hmm.
1: And I think um, the banning of of the Irish language by, uh, by by the English was, I think, very very unfortunate, including uh, at the end of the the 19th century, when they changed the the place names from Irish into English, they either phoneticized them or actually did a literal, a, a literal translation. And what that did is it took away the understanding of the meaning of place. I'm, I'm a nerd about this. Um, I love looking at roadsides and saying, well, what's the Irish for that? Then I'll know what that means.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was one, I think, very sad thing that happened. Um, I think the reason people... In Ireland, have a difficulty with learning language. I mean, we start doing that at four or five when you go to school, and you do it right through primary school and to secondary school. So it's not as if Irish people are not exposed to the Irish language. But I think with independence, the, those with the with the with the Gaelic revival, those who want to revive the Irish language in schools, they were going to do it properly, mm-hmm. and they became really really vicious grammarians. And so if you didn't speak it grammatically correct, it was beaten into people. We are not going to be, you know. um, I mean, the view of the English of the Irish uh, by the English of Irish people was that, you know, we were just lesser beings, hardly human, ineducable uh-huh. and all of that stuff. So we had to get out of that. We were, we were going to show that we weren't like that and that we would speak proper Irish. And we would speak it grammatically correct. And that was always the emphasis on it. Now, I had a facility for it, so I, I didn't have a difficulty with it. And I went to Connemara for a, my last term in primary school. This is a Gweldhoek area where I went to a school where children didn't speak English. So I was immersed in it. So I was easy. With it. So I was I was lucky. Um, but for a lot of other people who were stuck on the grammar. And I mean, when we're learning a language, our mother tongue, you don't correct children's grammar. They You, you start off with baby Italian, baby English, baby Irish, whatever it is. And gradually you shape it so that you're actually uh, speaking correctly. But for a long time before you speak correctly, people understand you.
2: Yeah, yeah, of course.
1: And I think that was it. It was that. Now, I think the approach to to the teaching of Irish language is much better. It's more conversational. I was lucky with the teacher I had in primary school. We had lots of conversations. We could make up stories. And I think that was just luck. Uh, And then I had uh, uh, my secondary school teacher from the Gaelthacht. She taught me French and I have no French. I can read it, but I can't hear it because it was all Os Gaelge through Irish. So I think... um, people now in irish are beginning to appreciate it more it's now become more popular there's um darach o'shea who's written a book um mother folklore and he does um, what's the what's the what's the goilga for he has a podcast there's moncon um again, another interesting character who uh, researches irish language and when i hear him it's like Ah, I'm just, I'm tingly. It's like he he just animates the Irish language again, as does Dara So it's coming back. And even my daughter, who won't speak Irish in school, even though it's a Gaelic school, she likes to break the rules. But she says she will speak it outside, elsewhere. In another country, she'll speak it. She's beginning to appreciate it. And what's really interesting, because initially she said it's a dead language. It's not a dead language. In DCU, one of the universities in Dublin, I think they have five or six courses, not in the arts humanities department, in the Irish language, but they're not, there could be engineering, they're they're technology courses, but they're Oscoelia. and that is really interesting, and it is one of the official languages of the EU. So I Mm. would hope um, it can come back more, because there is a magic in the language. I've learned so much about Druidry through looking at Irish, Mm. a, a very poetic language. Uh I also learned Italian. I took it up 5 years ago. So, uh mi piace il and uh, but- I go to Italy a lot and I have friends in Italian in Italy whose English isn't great so I speak Italian. And that drives yeah. me, it just tingles as well. You know, I just love the Italian yeah. language and I only took it up. I've never been to a class. I learned it on Duolingo and speaking yeah. it with my friends. Uh and I it's it's fascinating because it's like Italian expresses itself in a way or words or meaning in a way that English doesn't and Irish does it in a way that no other language does it so um I think it's an important one
2: yeah I I I really think I mean through just my own travels and my own experiences with language I I I truly believe that like you can't get to know a place or a culture until you understand the language and I'm not saying like you have to be fluent in it but you just start to at least converse or even just understand it maybe not even speak it but just to be able to understand it and I mean Jim um spent a bit of time out in Italy um, with the, with his girlfriend and he you know obviously I before he ever went out there I would tell him things about my childhood or whatever my upbringing. And they probably seemed a bit alien to Jim at the time. And then actually when he, when he was out there, he would send me a text every now and again and say, oh man, I, know, I understand why your dad did this or why you grew up doing this or why blah, blah, blah. Because he was, and it wasn't just the fact that he was in Italy, it's the fact that the, the language, it's, like, it's almost like the key that opens the door to then Pandora's box. And I felt like, and I, I love Ireland, um, I really do. And when I visited Jim, it was uh, such a great time in Ireland, but I did feel like I was missing something. And even though the Irish people, I always say they speak English in a far more romantic way than the English do. Um, that I just felt like, oh, man, maybe it's because I'm a language fanaticist, but I just felt like, ah, oh, there's something here that I'm not unlocking. Um, I wonder, is that part of the, is that what drew you also to Druidry? That, that connection with language and history um, is it was that, was that, in, was that important for you?
1: I, didn't know when I when I started looking at druidry that I would it would offer me such a connection back to the language. I discovered the magic of that then, because I, I I when I suppose left when I started secondary school I was almost fluent in Irish because of having been to Connemara, and then I left school secondary school and then I didn't use Irish so I would lost it it had gone asleep, and what druidry when um. It started, there was an Irish program for I think, where they paired towns in Ireland and they wanted them to start speaking Irish. So there was a competition Mm -hmm. And Freshford is a village near where I live. It was paired with Kong and I was asked if I would do a summer solstice ceremony in Irish. And I did for it, but um, they didn't show it on the film. But anyway, (laughs) but that really pushed me. Into Why am I running my ceremonies in Irish? And I started and I started. So it was Druidry got me back to Irish.
2: Mm. So, Jim, I'd love to know like your thoughts on on, on this and, and yeah, the Irish language and how, how you feel it ties in with identity and connection.
0: There's a truly beautiful aspect to uncovering a culture through a language. I can't like it can't be quite put into words, but I think you and Seb have done a much better job than myself. Um, just reflecting now, I guess it's a source of like quasi shame that I've experienced some of this uncovering to Spanish and Italian, but not Irish. I am motivated to to really invest time into Irish language. Like I think there's so much spiritual weight to it. I, but I guess I'm wondering... Do you think this barrier to the Irish language has previously prevented Irish people gravitating towards Druidry, and in the past? And why do you think Druidry membership is rapidly rising over the last few years?
1: Um, Well, the the order was founded. Wait a second. Now it's fifty six years ago by Ross Nichols, and there might have been twenty people. And then Philip, my predecessor in the Order, Philip Cargom, when he took over as chosen chief of the Order in 1988, there were about 10, 20 people. There are now over 25,000. And in 2020, the numbers, you know, the, the the numbers of new membership has risen hugely. There's a huge spike. Um, I suppose there are many reasons why... So we've 25,000, over 25,000 members worldwide. Now, that's quite a... Probably the largest order in the world. That's quite... For druidry, that's quite a lot. Um, and it's it 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 has resonances for people all over the world on all of the continents, not just people from the so-called Celtic lands. So why has it increased? I think um I think the the, the, the monotheistic dogmatic uh religions have for many people have lost meaning. So there are people who do not want authoritarian um dogma and druidry offers that it's a way of allowing you to explore yourself personally and to explore yourself um spiritually and to explore your 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 relationship with the land i think that is an important one also maybe um with all of the climate change and climate emergency that's being discussed all the time people may feel actually this might be something that might um answer a need for meaning um and also, because it allows you can still be a Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Jew, Buddhist, and you can be a druid. It allows for different worldviews. So you can believe in one God, many gods, no God. It doesn't matter, you can be an animist. It's that so it, it it's it's almost like it provides a a, a container for any odd bod. <laughs> As long as, you know, would you, as long as you have those core values, you know, we um, have a, a Druid's Prayer that was written, what, in the in the 18th century by Yolo Morganic, who was a Welsh Druid. Uh, and it's, uh, Grant, O Spirit, thy protection, and in protection strength, and in strength understanding, and in understanding knowledge, and in knowledge the knowledge of justice, and in the knowledge of justice the love of it, and in the love of it the love of all existences, and in the love of all existence is the love of spirit and all goodness. So you can find there are lots of values. It's a modern prayer, as in you know, it's not an ancient one. The Druids didn't write down their um, their beliefs. We only have accounts from the Romans and, and 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 the Christian monks. But we know from the stories about their love of nature and the roles they performed, and it's kind of encapsulated in that prayer. And I think the values in that prayer, you know, the love of justice. Um, the, the love of all existences uh, and spirit, I think is is resonating with people in, in, in a very deep way in, in these times. Um, and I suppose the pandemic, um, people are looking for meaning, people are looking for some uh, spiritual practice or worldview to help sustain them at this time. I imagine that's one of the reasons as well.
2: Yeah, I think it I think that's key, I think, because I think right now is a time where most people are trying to use it to reset or at least to evaluate decisions and lifestyle choices that we've made up until now. And if, is that has that worked for us? And when we kind of come out of this, whenever that may be, can we improve that or do we want to carry on as we're going on? And and you talked about agency beforehand, and I think people have felt a certain, they thought that they might have had control with certain life choices that they would made and then they've realized that actually that was all kind of farcical. Um, and there might, there might be a different way. And that's why I think even buttoned up Brits, um, are looking for more alternative ways to kind of traverse life, you know? And, and I think that's why we, we, that's why we've got you on the podcast and we will try to speak it to as many different people as possible, because the more you find out, the more you can kind of, Incorporate different things from different whether it's a belief system, a culture, a country, or wherever it may be. Um, and I really like the fact that in druidry you can actually maintain a certain identity that you may have had beforehand and don't want to give up and actually still incorporate into druidry and become a druid. How for someone who is listening to this and going, that seems really interesting. I want to find out more. Maybe they're not from Ireland or, you know, maybe it's not so easy, that connection. How can they find out more about where they could connect or how they could perform part of it?
1: Okay, well, we have a website, www.druidry.org. Mm-hmm. And um, there's lots and lots of information um, about Druidry itself. Uh, it, there's um, If people want to sign up for the, it's a, it's um, it's a mystery school. So uh, it's a teaching order, Uh and it's uh, a course by distance. And soon we're going, um, what is it, online. Up to now, it's been a a paper uh, um, sent out on the post, the lessons. Uh So you can get an introductory pack, and if it sits well with you, then you can um, sign up for the course. There are three grades. You start at the Bardic, and then you go on to the Ovid, if you so choose. You get lessons um, every month for a year and you're not expected to finish it in a year, but that's the duration of the lessons that get disseminated right. and you work on them at your own pace. And we also provide them a, a, a mentorship. So uh-huh. in that is you get a mentor, you apply for a mentor and who can support you um, as you continue through the, 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 the lessons.
2: So... Uh-huh. I wanted to ask as well, because you, you briefly touched on the fact that it's something that I really found quite interesting when I was doing the, when I was researching about Druidry is that you never, druids, back in the day, they never actually wrote anything down, kind of almost adds to the mystique and anything we do know is secondhand, like you said, from the Romans and, you know, I always wonder how much they actually really understood. Right? <laughs> um, but for, for someone who maybe has done research into what Druidry was in its original form, let's say, is and and maybe they dismissed it on that basis, or, or or whatever the case may be. Is there, is it the the more modern form you said it's done fifty sixty years ago? Is there a real link there, or is it a lot more? Is it different? Is, how similar are the two, the two, the two okay. things? I,
1: I'm not sure. The, uh-huh. um, there was a druid revival in the 1700s. I think I think it was it 1771. It's almost like a marker year. And you at uh, three criteria, you need to be male a mason and a christian and it was you know and the notion of druids being long-haired uh white guys with with long beards um yeah and and so they went back to looking at old descriptions of um, what druids were and so it's 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 over 300 years old you know that this modern druidry uh, uh-huh. and orders express themselves differently like i suppose different churches and um what what i like about druidry is that we can look as far as much as we can to the past and to the we we'll say the texts particularly by the the irish monks you get a sense of them we don't have we don't know how what rituals they did we but we know they honored the sun nature they were judges they were storytellers they were healers they were musicians poets they got inspiration from the goddess and the land and the landscape and the elements were very very important in nature we know all of that so today mod d- druidry is it's an organic spiritual path that's relevant for today so it's not stuck and locked in and you know and preserved and formaldehyde in you know in the past it's about um a spiritual path that has a relevance for today so right. we can look to the past and see what resonates with us today and see what else we can and, and do our own thinking and with meditation um we can find a practice for me and like i learn a lot from the landscape it it speaks to me and and uh-huh. the trees and i assume that's what the ancient druids experienced as well when the landscape spoke to them or trees spoke to them yeah um so it's it's a living growing spiritual path
2: I suppose in one way, it's, I mean, it's a benefit, isn't it, compared to the more traditional religions is that you have that agility to kind of morph and adapt and and to be able to, like you said, not have a list of 10 commandments or whatever it may be and be like, we have to stick to this book, which is 1500 years old and this is what it is and this is how it is and that's that. I wonder, you talk about the, the landscape and obviously it's, the, it's clearly vital for Druidry and, and that connection with land um, and nature. But you yourself know obviously having lived in Dublin for a period of time and not wanting to move back to to the rural landscapes. I live in Madrid. Jim's currently in Dublin, and most of our listeners, I would assume, are in cities. How can someone who is maybe interested in Druidry or just not even Druidry, but just connecting with nature again? How would you um recommend that they do so where maybe it's not at their it's not so easy it's not so um accessible for them
1: that's a really good question one of the earliest things teachings we have within the order is around uh, establishing your own sacred grove and that's an inner grove so a lot of the work as a druid a lot of the training is your inner work your own inner landscape finding that place finding that still center within your being within a grove of trees however and you view it you know you create it in your own mind and exercises so that That's what I really liked about Cassandra Eason's book when she said you can be in a city and you can create a physical grove with four pot plants, and then Mm -hmm. there's also your inner grove. So that no matter where you are, you can as a druid enter your grove. It's on the inner plane. And when I was talking about, you know, for me, it's like when I look to the landscape, and if my inner plane is my inner landscape is at one with the outer landscape, then there's harmony and balance. And it's easy for me because I'm just looking out my window now and I can see the landscape where in a city you're seeing concrete and traffic and all of that. Sometimes that's a little bit harder, yeah. but you can still do it. You can still do that on the inner plane and okay, maybe you can go to parks, but even, you know, having a window box, putting your hand in the earth in a window box, that is Earth's connection. Wow. Uh, um, being more mindful of the water you drink, where you get it, but even going to a park, looking at plants, noticing, um uh the 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 birds the plants i was interviewing on one of my fireside chats i do these on on a thursday evening um Ricky gellison was a guest of mine two weeks ago and he's london based well he's not he's kent but he belongs to a grove in london and his grove have managed to find key sites in london for example that are sacred and they they run ceremonies there and Ross Nichols, our founder, he, 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 he used to do it on Primrose Hill. Mm. So that it's, the, it, and there's the magic It's about being able to find the mystery, the magic, the spirit of place in Madrid, in Dublin, yeah. in wherever you are in London and to find that. And I remember reading an account of somebody who was in solitary confinement and they had a tiny window up at the top and they were able to look out. And the one thing that sustained them, they could see a tree was one tree Mm. and they connected with that tree and that is what sustained them so it's about finding that lifeline that place of connection i mean i see you've got a plant behind you a trailing plant yeah i suppose and you couldn't go outside your your door now because of whatever's happening Mm -hmm. there's your connection with nature Got yeah so that no matter and this is where the agency comes in even though you can't be deep in the forest right now You still have agency, you still have a choice, you can still connect because that pot plant is as valuable as the forest. Like each one of us is valuable. So whatever tiny, humble, small, little plant, flower, bird, they're all important. And it's about recognizing that and and having that connection with them, wherever you are.
2: I've got one last question because I know Jim's got a few backed up there. You've mentioned that there and you just literally touched on it right at the end, you said about the bird. And I wanted to ask you, if you have a pet, is that does can you connect there as well? Is there a form of connection with you know an animal or has, does it have to strictly be kind of a plant based more nature so, so to speak? There's
1: no there's no rules. If your connection is with your pet dog, your pet bird, your pet mouse, kitten, whatever it is, that's what's important because the the plants are valuable, the animals, it's everybody is is of 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 uh, value, and it's how you. Each, this is what's lovely about Druid is that how do you connect with nature? You do it. I do it through trees. That's really mm-hmm. that's my medicine.
2: Uh, yeah. I like
1: mountains. I like the seas, but really, I need trees. For mm-hmm. you, horses. Somebody else is something else. You have your own way of engaging with nature. That that, that provides the key or the conduit to connect with the natural world, and you have that
2: freedom uh, to do that. Perfect. Okay, Jim, it's all yours now. I'll, I'll take a step back. <laughs>
0: I love you describing your communication with trees and the wind. And I'm even reminded of an interview I watched last week where the woman spoke of a song that was given to her by the river. I can't help but think maybe we have lost an ability to communicate with nature, which now sounds more absurd than intuitive.
1: It's... I don't think it's been lost. I just think it's asleep. It's like if you... So you're in Dublin now and you cross O'Connell Bridge and you see the Liffey and she's not saying anything to you. Of course she's not because you're busy crossing the thing and there's traffic and everything else. But if you actually go and sit beside a river and wait and see what happens, uh, if you've got your headphones in, you're not going to hear anything. If you're in the woods and you've got a headset in, it's around leaving yourself open. I My fireside chat last night, I, I was in conversation with um, Frank Martinez, who lives in, in Eureka in California, and his, he lives in Redwood country and the trees talk to him. And somebody asked in the chat, you know, how long did it take before they would speak to you? And he said he's been doing this all his life. And it's around just opening yourself up. With no investment in the outcome, but it's like I am now going to sit beside this river and I'm going to listen. Or I'm going to watch, I'm going to see, watch how the river flows. I'm going to look at the little eddies, looking to see what's passing by, looking how fast, are there little waves, and wait to experience it. That's what the druids and the bards of old did as they sat beside the rivers and received the imas, that inspiration. Or we also, another word is a little different, is aksha, getting that wisdom, that creativity from the landscape. So I think it's about opening yourself up and it's, Quiting your mind and waiting in a very patient way for them for nature to speak to you but you, you it's a bit like um if you have the radio on and you're not listening and you're in another room um you're not going to hear anything so it's about switching it on it's not lost it's there they're just waiting for you to turn up
0: i'm looking forward to reawakening this from myself can I ask how you combine your reverence, knowledge, and relationship with the natural world with your work as a psychologist?
1: Well, it's an interesting one um when I trained uh this was pre pre google uh pre you know able to look up every and you were meant to, as a psychologist as a psychotherapist, blank screen, nobody knew anything about you. You didn't reveal anything about your private life so that you were this neutral person providing a safe environment for the, for the client to work on whatever was important to them. And now with Google, I know people Google me. So they'll say, I Googled you and I realized you're the right person for me, which tells me there are other people who have Googled me and they go absolutely no way. So I don't talk about being a Druid. I don't talk because that's, the idea is you don't influence anybody all right and in my training we were told you leave spirituality to the priests you just deal with the psyche stuff and of course I found that people were coming bringing up spiritual issues <laughs> and now because people google and check everybody out before they go to anybody they know she's a druid so it 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 it'll, I won't bring it up it'll come up itself but also um it, it's 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 Sometimes I'll ask a question, what feeds your spirit? I don't say, do you go to mass? Do you pray on a mat? It's like, what feeds your spirit? And then eventually, you know, invariably it'll come up. I like walking in the, in the woods. Well, what happens to you when you walk in the woods? Well, actually, I feel X, Y, and Z. I feel so much better. I feel if I go for a long walk, my depression lifts. So it, I, it, it's not overt, it's there and it comes up in a conversation. So when the client brings it up, then we can have an exploration of the importance of nature. But it's always what they think and from their perspective. So I don't preach it, as it were. And I work from home. So when people, they have to drive out to see me, I'm in a rural area and they come up my driveway and they go around my garden. And then as they're waiting to come inside my office door, they're standing at the doorstep, looking over the garden, looking at the river. And that's that. So they're immersed in a... A nature space before they even come into the room and often that will um so it's there in in my practice environment is nature that they see it uh without having to say anything does that so that's how it is it's it's subtle as a not sneaky but it's 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 a subtle presence there
2: how do you think going forward what do you think the movement um Will will how will it evolve? How how can you see this going forwards? Um, as we as we go to the future, you said that your numbers are starting to go up, that you're already at twenty five thousand. Uh, do you, when these people who are sub, who are um enlisting are they? Is there a, a gen? Is there a profile that they're fitting? Are they younger? Are they women? Are they men? Are there? Is there? A, is there a specific trend?
1: I haven't looked at that. so I couldn't tell you. But what's really interesting because of this pandemic, is that we are now, um, I do these fireside chats online. So they go out, they're live streamed every Thursday on a YouTube and, uh, and Facebook. Philip Cargon, my predecessor, he does these teas with the Druid on a Monday night. And we've started running some of our rituals to mark the Wheel of the Year online. This, is, this has never happened before. So the teas had started maybe two or three years ago. I started the fireside chats in the autumn. So now what's happening is that more and more people are watching who are not members of the order, so people are uh and I, I get messages from people say, I'm not a member, but I was just blown away by this. I really loved your ceremony, or I liked the chat. It's really interesting to to, to listen to Druid to speaking about their their lives. So, in a sense, um something is unfolding that I would not have expected. Yeah, and you think pandemic, you know, what a terrible thing that, that has happened to the world. This is one silver lining that it's reaching out to people. So I get messages from even members who say, I'm a solitary Druid. I'm in the middle of Nebraska, for example, and I don't know any other Druids. And this is the first time I've been able to take part in a ceremony and it's wonderful. I'm, it's lovely to meet people online. So the online, for all its failings, mm. has actually, in this time of physical isolation, has opened itself up to people. So so um, people... Spiritually, can actually connect with other people. And it's opening it to non druids. And that's really, really interesting. So it'll be, I've no idea, because if you told me a year ago, would I be running rituals online, I'd have said, no, they're inappropriate. Yeah. yeah. That. They, and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. And now I've discovered that you can have a really deep experience. For example, the handing over ceremony when I became head of the order last June, that was done online. There was a pre recorded ceremony. And I was sitting in my sitting room. And I was right there in my inner world feeling the handover of the energy Mm -hmm. from Philip to myself. Really profound. I could never have predicted that. And so we're discovering with all this physical isolation, I'm not suggesting it's better than the real thing. It is not. I'm hoping to get and stand in a circle with people physically. But that we are making the best of a really difficult situation. And in fact, the online stuff is, is broadening it out to people so who knows what's going to unfold yeah. from this going forward that it, it's 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 open
2: yeah yeah i know and it's i think like you said it's a silver lining and it shows like you said you would have dismissed it beforehand but the fact that you kind of been forced to play that hand is now something that you could maybe incorporate going forwards even when this all lifts that would open you up to other communities that beforehand wouldn't be available to you, obviously because you you were based in a certain place and it had to all be done in person. So, I mean, that's, it's definitely a benefit uh, talking about years. Um, it just brings me on to one last question, which we forgot to ask. We should have asked beforehand. Um, could you just talk to us about the Druidy calendar and how that improves the alignment with nature?
1: Well, we have a wheel of the year now. Um, so we've just had Imolc, um, the beginning of February and that marks in Ireland it's the first day of spring nobody ever agree <laughs> I think the rest of the world doesn't right. agree with this but um this is the time when I suppose the first signs of life and new growth is just coming up you know the shoots are just beginning to peep up uh, from the surface and we have our snowdrops and uh imulk means or the old Irish word is oil meaning use milk this is the time when the lambs are born and okay in, Imolk or imulg means in the belly, so refers to the womb. And uh, Bridget is the triple goddess. and She comes at this time or is honoured uh, in her maiden aspect. But also for Christians, Saint Bridget is honoured at this time. So it's a, it's a time of hope. Bridget is the goddess of fire and water. So it, she's bringing with her this new light heading uh, forward into the year. And then we come up to the spring equinox and our ancient ancestors now we're we're going back to our megalithic ancestors, our neolithic ancestors um, there are a number of passage tombs and even stone circles etc. that are aligned to the equinoxes so the solar fences, so we have the equinoxes at March and September and then we have the solstices in June and December so those ancient monuments are aligned to those and then Imolc Bialtana, which is in May, Lunasa, August, and Samhain, which is in November, these are may have been seen as fire festivals or agricultural festivals. So, right. uh, and they're Celtic. The the megalithic ones are pre Celtic, but in modern paganism, it's not just um, Druidry, but also Wicca and other pagans mark the wheel of the year. They've actually brought those two traditions to, together to create a wheel so when we come into the spring equinox this is the time for planting seeds and well, when you do that in the mm-hmm. landscape so saint patrick's day um was the day for planting potatoes in ireland and for pruning your roses so that's <laughs> close to the to to, to the um, the equinox you plant seeds so when we're doing our ceremonies we will plant we have a seed planting ceremony and it's planting a seed in your inner you you we physically do one okay literally we plant mm-hmm. a seed in a pot but also we're sowing seeds within for something we would like to grow uh, to germinate in our own lives. It could be, I just want to be a bit tidier or I want to be more patient or it could be, you know what, well, I'm going to take on some study or I want to complete something. And you nurture that plant uh, right? in the external world but also you're paying attention to it and feeding it on your inner world. Okay. So that you come up to Beltane, at Beltane in England um, is when you know everything is abundant you know there's this huge surge of sexual energy and growth in the landscape and mm-hmm. you look at these feminine and masculine principles and you bring those together to create things and you're paying attention to what it is you've sown in in, in march and allowing right. it to grow and then we follow that then we reach the pinnacle at the solstice you know where the sun's power reaches its height and then the paradox is as soon as it reaches the highest point it begins to decline and then we come into Luna, so which is the early harvest. And then September is the mid-harvest. And then Samhain, um, Halloween, is the time where we honour the ancestors. It marks the end of summer, beginning of winter. It's the time of drawing in um, Bridget in her collic form, the crone form, comes at that time and wipes clean the landscape to prepare it for winter, for the stillness and restriction of winter, where the seeds come embedded And they need that cold, frosty time of stillness to rest. And then they germinate again in spring at this time we are now.
2: Mm. Interesting stuff. And then solstice
1: marks the winter solstice marks the. And then again, you have, you see, typical like Newgrange, um, Stonehenge. We have a sacred site near us here in Kilkenny called Nock Row, where there are two Uh passage tombs aligned to the winter solstice one at the sunrise, one at the sunset. So once we've passed that point, the days get longer. The light is growing. It's a time of hope. But prior to that, we're in the dark. We mourn for what's gone. We stay still. And it's interesting with lockdown is that we've had to stay within. That we're more, this year has like, I'm more in tune with my landscape because I'm Mm -hmm. here all the time. I'm not busy. Of course. Yeah, of course. So I, I could withdraw into the dark time of the year and stay still, which is right more at one with with the landscape than if i had been normally busy so i've looked here as uh, a gift i'm dying to get back out again you know i can't wait to meet my friends it's also been a really good lesson in staying with the landscape both my inner and my outer
2: beautiful stuff i mean thank you so much for your time it's been really really um interesting and Found out so much, so much new information that we had no idea about. Before we let you go, we have to ask. Um, we ask all of our guests how you um, keep on top of your mental health. What are your little kind of tricks of the trade um, that you have? I think you've alluded to some of them with the trees. Um, but for anyone who's listening, who might try to steal some of your uh, little tricks, um, what could you share with us?
1: I'm happy to share it. Walking, so I walk in the woods, my trees, meditation. I read. Uh, I play the harp. Uh, mm-hmm. I I tell stories um, I cook I like um, I like looking after my nutrition so um, time in the garden and when things get you know and I get pissed off or I'm just stressed it's like okay breathe Yeah. Just follow my breath it's as simple as that and that can actually just ground me in the moment and recognising mm-hmm. that this will pass and that yep. accepting there's nothing I can do about this now, but I can decide to take a breath. I can decide to go make myself a cup of tea. Yeah. Or I, I, that's all that matters and leave. It's almost like recognizing what I cannot control and leaving it and say, okay, well I'll deal with that when it, I can do it. It's what can I do now? Perfect. Um, and, and and talking to friends, being, staying in connection with people. I think that's really, really important.
2: I agree. Yeah. Especially now, I obviously I live in Madrid and a lot of my friends are back home. I say back home, Madrid is my home now, but back in England. And I, I make a conscious effort to contact them, call them, FaceTime them, whatever it may be, just to stay connected and not let distance be the reason that our friendship breaks down. So I think that's a, a huge key. I know you mentioned your website beforehand, but for people who want to find some more information, um, we'll put the website in the in the show notes. But could, could you just give it to us one more time?
1: It's www.druidry.org.
2: There you go. You could have it any easier than that. Drewdry.org, guys. Um, so Thank you so much for your time, Emma. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, and we hope that people who've listened have maybe learned something that they didn't know beforehand and maybe even uh, get in contact with you via your website. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Great. Thank you. Lovely. I really enjoyed talking to, to the two of you. Thank you so much. Thank
2: you. Hi, guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week, but until then, keep safe and have a good one.